be to look at your word word this evening. Our Lord prayed to you, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. This is the means that you have ordained through the filling of the Holy Spirit to transform and renew our thinking so that we can have the mind of Christ in us to face life on the basis of that objective reality that we might make the kinds of decisions that we need to whenever uh, we face situations that call for decisions, whether prosperity or adversity, whatever these tests might be, that we apply doctrine, that we might grow and mature as believers in our spiritual life and advance to spiritual maturity. Father, all of this is to glorify you. So now as we open your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to concentrate on the teaching, to understand the principles that we find here, that we may apply them to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We, are, we have come to an, the last two verses in the opening prologue of the epistle of James. James chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. By the time we finish the epistle of James, this chart on the overhead should be fairly well ingrained in your thinking. This is a chart, just another way of looking at what takes place, what God is doing in our lives in the spiritual life. Remember, God's goal for each of us as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not simply to get us into heaven, to have eternal life. But God's goal, part of His plan, and we will study that aspects of his plan later on this hour. But his plan is to take every believer and to conform them to the image of Christ, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. We do that through the renovation of our thinking. The Bible is called the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We are to take the mind of Christ and that is to be our thinking. And that as we renew our mind, renovate our thinking, we are to... Face life as Christ faced life. That's ultimately occupation with Christ. Now in this diagram we have the cross on the left side, the salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a one-time decision when a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone. That according to another diagram that we use, is phase one, salvation from the penalty of sin. When we get down here to the right-hand side of the diagram, where you have the square representing the judgment seat of Christ and the two arrows going to rewards and inheritance and loss of, or loss of rewards and temporary shame, that represents phase three in the spiritual life. Salvation from the presence of sin or glorification. Phase three, sanctification. All of this in the middle represents the dynamics of what is going on in the spiritual life. The flow chart in the top cycle represents what goes on continually when we are in fellowship with the Lord. We are all familiar with this diagram where you have the cross.
cross here, the moment of salvation, you enter into the top circle, which is our eternal relationship with the Lord, can never be broken. We are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. That defines our eternal position in Christ. Secondly, we have a sphere that represents our relationship with God in the temporal realm, in time. When we are in this sphere, we are said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we sin, Scripture calls that grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, then we are out of fellowship. We are under the control of the sin nature, and we are said to be carnal. The only way to return to fellowship inside the sphere is the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we look at the flow chart, which I'll put back up here, the top cycle represents what takes place when we are under the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the dynamic there. But the, the bottom flow chart represents what takes place when we're outside the bottom circle in carnality. So let me put that back up on the overhead. When we are filled with the Spirit, as long as we're filled with the Spirit and applying doctrine, growth takes place. We face various tests of doctrine. We saw that in James 1, chapter 3, knowing that the testing of your faith, and we saw that's in the objective concept of faith, a test of what you believe, that is doctrine. Every time you hit a test, a situation in life that may be prosperity or adversity gives us the opportunity to make a choice, exercise our volition, to apply the doctrine in our soul or not, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it produces divine good. It leads to what the Bible calls life. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give life abundantly. I'm not talking about simply eternal life, but the quality of life that we have as believers. It gives us capacity for life, for love, and for happiness, and it produces in our lives evidence of the grace of God and God's um, Goodness, in, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, we demonstrate that the will of God is good and perfect. That leads to steadfast endurance, persistence, coming to Bible class when it's hard, when it's difficult, when we've got other things to do, when we've worked hard all day and we're, we're tired and worn out and we can't concentrate and you just keep coming because you know that's what you need to do and you build that habit pattern into your life and you make that the priority for yourself and for your family. That's the most important thing. You parents, that's one of the most important things you can do as a parent. There are so many distractions that you as a parent face with your children. There's all kinds of extracurricular activities to put your kids into. There are all sorts of time demands for them. And yet as you're training them from the time they're a young child, you need to communicate to them the most important thing in their life is not getting skills in athletics, not developing musical skills, not that those things are wrong, not going to whatever the other extracurricular activities, activities may be, whether it's soccer or football or music or dancing, whatever it may be, those are fine and those are good and there's nothing wrong with them. But all through life, we're faced with all kinds of good and wonderful things to do that are distractions from the main thing, which is learning doctrine and growing in the spiritual life. 
And the most important thing you can do as a parent is to make sure you're here with your kids every Wednesday night at Bible class because then you're teaching them where their priorities are. And I've seen many parents, many families over the years never suffer. The kids never suffer. They always manage to find the time to get all the other things in, but they're always there at Bible class every night no matter what. And the kids learn from that. Persistence, steadfast endurance. That means that when when you're in the midst of that trial, it's never easy. There are some tests that we go through. Sometimes we go through adversities, and sometimes it seems like adversity piles upon adversity. And yet you just have to persist. You have to keep practicing doctrine. Those of you who have been in the military, reflect back on your basic training or when you were getting your, I don't know, I know they call it MOS in the Army. I don't know what they call it in the Navy. But when you're getting your training and you're out there, those of you who are in the Navy out there in subs or whatever, you constantly go through drills. You learn the procedures and you go through drill after drill after drill after drill so that when the pressure comes, you don't really have to think. You just go through the motions they've built into you. The same thing in any discipline, whether it's music and you're learning your music for a recital, whether it's dance, whether it's athletic competitions, you practice over and over again, and it becomes boring. And there's so many... I remember when I was a kid, every morning I had to get leave for school, I think, at 8 o'clock, and from 7 to 7.30 I had to practice my piano every morning for 10 years. And, after, and you have to practice those songs that you're going to play in the recitals over and over and over again. I must have driven my parents nuts hearing those same songs again and again and again. So that when you're up there and you get nervous, it's all there in your muscle memory and it just comes out. Same thing in athletics, whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, whether it's football or basketball. You just get out there and you practice and you practice and you practice because that's how it's perfected. That's how you develop those skills. So when we hit tests, what do we do? We say, what do I practice here? I practice a faith rest drill. What are, the, what are the passages of Scripture? What are the promises I apply here? Phase one of the faith, faith rest drill is mixing the promises of, of God with faith. Okay, what are the promises I use in this particular situation? You begin to, to combine uh, promises with faith, develop doctrinal rationales, and come to doctrinal conclusions. But you say, what's the drill? What do I do here? How do I apply grace orientation to this situation? How, how do I respond in grace instead of reacting in anger or bitterness or, or revenge motivation, something like that, mental attitude sins, or with sins of the tongue? We you think constantly, thinking, thinking, thinking. How do I apply what I'm learning to this situation? That's persistence. And as you keep doing it, it becomes easier, it becomes ingrained, and you develop this. It becomes more, more and more second nature to you to respond certain ways to those situations. And over time, and I don't mean a week or two weeks, I'm talking four, five, ten years, fifteen years, character begins to be transformed. This is that transforming process. And as time goes by, you don't no longer have to think, okay, what promise do I claim here? All of a sudden you find yourself just claiming that promise. You find yourself trusting God. You find yourself responding with impersonal love towards people, not just in a way that avoids mental attitude sins, but a way that actually pursues in, 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 in initiation and humility towards 
that person who doesn't deserve any love at all whatsoever. That's steadfast endurance, and that leads to maturity in the adult spiritual life. And this is a cycle, a spiral that goes on. If you take the negative route, as long as you're down here, there's always recovery to move move north here through 1 John 1.9. But if we stay in this bottom cycle, it has a negative effect. Sin produces sin, human good, and temporal death. And we saw that in our passage last time in James 1, 14 through 15, that in midst of trials, there's always the temptation to solve it through the sin nature. There's always a, a lust pattern that's going to motivate us that comes out of the sin nature to handle that situation somehow through human viewpoint, through human good, through personal sin of one form or another. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And we saw that when when that initial desire is married to positive volition, it is then that the product that is given birth to, or what is given birth to is sin. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what we're talking about here. Carnal death, being outside the bottom circle, being under the control of the sin nature, it's destructive. Ultimately, it leads to the sin under death. It's a life of misery because God is going to discipline us as a loving father. Hebrews chapter 12. He is going to scourge us alive with a whip because he, he has to get our attention. And sometimes we are like those donkeys that need a two-by-four between the ears two or three times to get our attention. And it's very, very painful. The product down here when we try to handle the tests on our own in negative volition, sin, human good, temporal death, which has a cumulative effect of producing a weakness in us spiritually and it causes instability in our lives and in our soul. And we saw that back in chapter 1, verse 8, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the person who does not operate on faith but mixes faith with doubting. That leads to spiritual regression a reverse of our spiritual growth. We begin to lose ground. We begin to back up. And it leads to a hardening of the heart, scar tissue on the soul. And this is a cycle that can continue in decline until eventually the believer is taken out through the very miserable and very painful sin unto death. At death, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. There we face our evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where we either receive rewards and inheritance for our faithfulness and application of doctrine in this life, or loss of rewards and temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's the background. We always have to keep that in mind because that gives us the blueprint of God's plan for our life. And if one word described all of that, it would be grace. Because God devised that plan billions of millennia ago, in eternity past. That is the framework that we have to have firmly in our thinking when we come to James. Now, when we come to James, these last two verses in James 1, the the prologue, verses 17 and 18, I want to stop, as I'm doing here, and just kind of pull this together, because this is the culmination of this whole argument that James has been presenting throughout this first chapter. So often what happens is as we go through and we move through these verses and we've covered a lot of doctrine, we've done a lot of technical exegesis over the last 
How long has it been? Seven months now? And we're down to verse 17 and 18. We are mining solid chunks of gold ore from this passage. And we're learning a lot of important facts. But sometimes when we're looking, as we look at the doctrines that we're learning, we have to step back and understand the flow. Sometimes we can get so focused on looking at examining each individual leaf that we forget what the forest looks like. So in, in the entire epistle of James, James begins with an introduction where he is going to focus on certain themes that he will repeat again and again inside the main part of this epistle. The main part of the epistle doesn't begin until verse 19. From verse 2 down through verse 18, we have his prologue where James urges us to respond to trials through application of doctrine and not to react by blaming God. See, that's one of the problems that so many people have is they want to react to uh, tests and trials. How can a just and loving God make me go through this? Why would he let this happen in my life? We learn from looking at these verses that the purpose of testing, the purpose of adversity, the purpose of suffering is to give us opportunities to apply doctrine and grow because, frankly, there's no other way. You cannot get from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity without learning to apply doctrine. And what happens as a result of this process as we grow to maturity is whatever level of maturity we have in our soul, whatever doctrine we have in our soul, at the point that we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, is what we take with us into heaven. We've all heard that the guy who dies with the most toys wins, but he can't take it with him. The person who dies with the most doctrine in their soul, that's the person that wins. The person who has matured in their spiritual life because that's the only thing that we take with us into heaven. So the thrust of this entire prologue is to respond to trials through application of doctrine and not by reacting in blame to God. In verses 2 through 11, we see the first part of this, that the correct response to tests, tests of faith, is to persistently apply doctrine stored in the soul. We do this by relying on the faith rest drill. Verse 6, But let him ask by means of faith without any, do- without any doubting. We do it through doctrinal orientation. Verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We do this through grace orientation. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. We saw that meant to exalt in what the all the assets that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let the rich man, that is the person who has uh, many of the details of life, glory in true or genuine humility because just as the flower of the grass, the details of life will ultimately disappear. The issue is what is in the soul. That's the first from verse 2 to verse 11. Then the second section starting in verse 12, deals with the incorrect response to trials. We are warned about uh, becoming self-absorbed, moving into self-pity, and blaming God for the difficulties we encounter in life. The believer must recognize that the sin nature, responding to trials on the basis of the sin nature, is 
the source of death and is self-destructive in the spiritual life. You see, at the point of testing, we have a fortress. I understand that you can't read prosperity and adversity very well, and I was almost late tonight because I kept messing with my computer trying to straighten that out, and I got that straightened out, but then other things went wrong. Computers are supposed to be great time savers. Well, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But Sometimes I'm almost late on Sunday because I'm trying to get it to print or I'm trying to get something to, to work. But that says prosperity and adversity. Those are the attacks on the soul. And we erect a fortress, a shield. God is our bulwark, our fortress, our shield. He's our rock. The psalmist used all of these metaphors to describe the protection that God gives us when prosperity and adversity attack. And these are the stress busters, the problem-solving devices that God has given us. Now, when we choose to solve the problem on our own, the walls crumble. And what's left is no defense. Outside adversity penetrates the soul in the form of stress, and that's tantamount to sin nature control of the soul. And that ends up in death. This is the point of verses 13 through 15. Now that brings us to the conclusion where we stopped last week in verse 16. Paul concludes, I mean James concludes there saying, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by what? Don't be deceived by the sin nature. When you encounter the suffering, the tests, the hardships, when you feel like there's all that pressure on your soul from the outside, and it's so easy to succumb to worry, to fear, to anxiety, to bitterness. One of the most destructive sins of all the sins is to cave into bitterness and react towards people. Leviticus 18.19 combines the, the message of uh, impersonal love for all mankind with the warning, do not give in to bitterness. Uh, the sin nature offers solutions that seem very attractive at the point of testing. They, they will provide immediate gratification and immediate release, perhaps, from some of the pressure that we're facing. And yet this is a deception, and the end of it is death. There's one of my favorite Proverbs. It's stated twice in Proverbs. There's only a few verses that are repeated in Proverbs. And I think that whenever the Holy Spirit takes the time to say the same thing twice, we ought to wake up and pay attention to it. He doesn't do it very often. There's a verse that says, There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Strong verse. Human viewpoint, trying to solve your problems on your own, apart from the doctrinal principles and under the filling of the Holy Spirit, leads to carnal death. In contrast to the death that the sin nature provides, in verse 17, we have what God provides. In the English, let me read these two verses together. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the firstfruits of among his creatures. Now let's take a minute and look at the exegesis of this verse. And I think that where we have to start to understand this is 
focus on what comes down from above. We have two things here in the Greek. The English, you have good thing, which doesn't mean a whole lot. Rather nebulous concept. What is a good thing? And secondly, every perfect gift. Well, we need to challenge the translation of both of these because they're, 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 they're a little weak. The word here translated perfect in the Greek is a, should be an old friend by now. It's from the adjective telios. That should be a final S. T-E-L-E-I-O-S. And that means to complete. To bring to, the verb means to bring to completion, to make mature. In secular Greek, it did have the idea, the connotation of perfection, of something being flawless, related to virtue. But I have a hard time finding that meaning anywhere in the Scripture. Generally, it is used to, as a relationship to spiritual maturity. And I think we need to understand it that way here in verse 17. Every maturing gift. Every maturing gift. And the word that's translated gift here is the Greek word dorion. Looks like this. And it is a very strong word for gift. This is perhaps the strongest word in the Greek to represent an undeserved, unmerited present. It's Christmas time. Everybody think that Christmas, there's a theme of legalism that underlies Christmas. It's this song about Santa Claus. He's looking to see. He knows who's been naughty or nice. If you've been naughty, you're not going to get any presents. That's not grace orientation, is it? Well, the gifts of God are not based on who's been naughty or nice because we're all naughty. We're all sinful. So that's what makes it free grace because it's undeserved. So this is a very strong word for grace. So these are maturing, the maturing gifts. Those gifts of God that are related to our maturity. And I think that what James is talking about here is what I call contingent blessings in time. These are the blessings that God has designed for us from eternity past that He withholds until we're mature enough to handle them. Now we've started in the middle of the verse, so we're working our way backward because we have to understand the terminology here before we can begin to apply the principles. So the second category relates to maturing gifts or contingent blessings in time related to maturity and spiritual growth. And the first is every good thing. Every good thing, and this in the Greek, is the word dosis, D-O-S-I-S, which also comes from the same root as Dorian, the D-O, right here, even though this is an omega, that's just, that's a variant. Um, the D-O is the root for the, from the verb didomi, which relates to giving. But it's a less powerful word, a less, it's a weaker word for, for a gift. So it's the, the, uh, uh, every, Good act of giving, I think, is the way we would 
we would uh, tra- we can translate that. It's hard to bring the thrust of this over into the English because we we have gifts and we have presents. And some English translations try to make a distinction. Every good present and every perfect gift. How do you distinguish between a present and a gift? They're almost synonymous in English. So, let's say every good act of giving or every good act of grace, this would be perhaps related to logistical grace blessings. We have two kinds of blessings. Let's review this for a minute. There are two kinds of blessings in the Christian life. There are logistical grace blessings which God gives to every single believer for life support and for spiritual life support. Logistical grace. It keeps you alive. It's food, shelter, and clothing, the air you breathe, the water you drink, and God's going to give that to every believer. And then there are advanced grace blessings which relate to uh, the contingent grace blessings. Now, God is plus R. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God provides. What the just righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. So here's the righteousness of God. When we're saved, we, are, we receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. So this sets up a relationship between the perfect righteousness of God and the perfect righteousness that you possess as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This plus R never has been, never will be a result of anything that you do. It's not there because you go to Bible class. It's not there because you go to prayer meeting. It's not now next week nobody will be at Bible class or prayer meeting. It's not there because you give. It's there because at the moment that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you received God's perfect righteousness. So the perfect righteousness of God looks on the perfect righteousness that He's imputed to you, and because of that, the justice of God blesses you. Period. That's true for both logistical grace blessing, and it's true for advanced grace blessing. Not because you've done something that God blesses you. It's because you possess the perfect righteousness. You don't earn it at all. It's nothing you earn, nothing you deserve. Now, as we advance in spiritual growth, we develop capacity for life. And as we develop capacity for these blessings, then God gives them to us. But you have to make sure you never think that the reason you get the blessing is because you did the deed. You get the blessing because you've been learning doctrine and you've been applying doctrine and the result is spiritual growth and now you're ready for those blessings so God gives them to you. Just as you as a parent are probably hearing a number of requests for toys, various toys that your kids see advertised on television at this time of the year and you know they're not old enough or maybe they're too old but you know they're not ready for that present. Maybe a year from now or two years from now, they'll be old enough to appreciate it and utilize it, but not now. So in your wisdom, you say, they're not going to get it. That's the same principle. God just waits until we're ready. So so what we have here in James chapter 1, verse 17, is every good thing that is logistical grace blessings 
and every maturing or completed gift, advanced grace blessings, contingent blessings in time, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Coming down is a uh, from katabino, which is a uh, aorist passive. I mean, aorist passive participle, indicating that it's the result of the Father's volition in in giving it to us. And here the Father is referred to as the Father of Lights. Now, what does that mean? Why refer to Him as the Father of Lights? Well, here I think James is taking a page out of the Gospel of John. Remember, we have said several times in our study of John on Sunday mornings that John is the master of the double entendre. Now, what is a double entendre? That is using a word like logos to refer to Jesus Christ. And it has several meanings. It can mean communication, and it can mean reason. In a double entendre, both are true. It's not that you have a higher meaning and a lower meaning. That was the idea of the old allegorical interpretation that there is the, there's the meaning of the letter of the word that re- re- just re- refers to physical things and then there's a deeper spiritual meaning you have to have some sort of uh, special clue for before you're going to get the initiated knowledge. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that John is a master of using words and another one which we're going to see in this passage. In fact, we see it... Uh, in this verse, coming uh, down, uh, as we saw it in this verse, I just skipped over it, every perfect gift is from above. That in the Greek is a word that we looked at in John 3. Anothen, A-N-O-T-H-E-N, has two meanings. It means from above, and it means again. And John specifically chose to use that word because he was in Matthew, I mean in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus to emphasize the fact that the source of regeneration is from above, but it is a second birth. Here it has the, only the first meaning, which is from above. So John, we saw many times, uses a double entendre. And here James is doing the same thing. First of all, the term Father of Lights, when we think about what that means, we have to go back to a basic hermeneutical principle. That is the first time a word, first really two or three times that any word, any concept is taught in the Scriptures, provide the basic definition for that doctrine. What's the first time that lights is mentioned in Scripture? It refers to Genesis chapter 1. It refers to the greater light of the sun and the lesser light of the moon and then the lights of the stars. So it refers to heavenly object here, which means that right away the term Father of Lights drives us to the doctrine of creation, that God is the Creator. So one meaning that James is driving us to here is if God created all of the heavenly bodies and stretched out the universe 
and has so much power that he can create everything in the universe. Don't you think God has enough power to handle the problems in your life? That's what that's driving us to. He's the Father of lights. If He's the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, then He can certainly handle the problems that we face in life. But there's also another level of meaning here. And that is one that we've talked about also in our study on Sunday morning in John, and that is that light refers to the whole concept of illumination of truth and revelation. Psalm 119, 130 says, The entrance of thy word gives light. God is the source of all revelation. He is the one who gives light. He is the one who gives his word to us. And that is the source of illumination on how to handle our problems. And I'm working on a diagram. I've got a computer program that's supposed to do this and make that happen. I haven't figured that out yet. So until then, it takes a long time to... The learning curve on these computer programs is pretty intense. So I've got too many other things to do in terms of exegesis to spend all my time reading instruction manuals on computer programs. So we're going to work on this in the, in the rough here. The pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. We've got a spiral going here. Because the core of this is to hit us in the very heart of our thinking. The Bible uses that word cardia, heart, not to refer to emotions or gut reactions or emotional responses. Now, I'm so tired of hearing Christians use talk in terms of this subjective, meaningless heart theology. Have you ever been around folks? I mean, they mean well. They just don't think very deeply. And they say, doesn't that just make your heart feel good? And I always bite my tongue and say, well, just exactly what do you mean by heart? Well, they say, well, I just knew that was wrong because it just didn't feel right in my heart. Well, what do you mean by that? Is it some kind of gut reaction? Did you palpitate a little bit? Talking about your physical heart? What do you mean? I mean, that, and, and see, this kind of terminology, everybody uses it one time or another, but, but in certain denominations, it's prevalent. It's every other sentence we talk about how meaningful this is to our heart and how God speaks to my heart and how, how Jesus has you know, changed my heart. Well, what do you mean by heart? And we have to go back to the Scriptures and let the Bible tell us what heart means. And heart doesn't mean some sort of liver quiver, some sort of emotional response that deep in my, in my gut, I, it just feels right so I know it's right. That has nothing to do with divine guidance or biblical truth. That has to do with, that, that's this soft mysticism that has just permeated Christianity throughout the centuries. Heart has to do with, I think the, the core of the metaphor, that's the word, the, the, the metaphor here talks about the core of something. We talk about the, the heart of a matter. We go right to the very core of the issue. We use the word heart, we say, the, we go to the store and you buy a little jar of hearts of palms. 
Well, that's not something that an organ that beats and pumps anything through a palm tree. That's the core, the very center. It's a very tasty, tender part of the palm. We talk about, we use heart over and over again to talk about the heart of a city. Well, what are we talking about? The centermost part of a city, the core. So, the heart in Scripture, which is the Greek word cardia, in the Hebrew it is lev, L-E-V, K-A-R-D-I-A for the Greek cardia. This is the heart of, and it's used of thinking. Thinking over and over again. And, and one, another rule of hermeneutics is you always interpret the vague by the clear. So you go to a lot of passages and it may sound like emotion, but it could also be your thinking. Which is it? Well, you always let clear passages tell you what unclear passages mean. So cardia refers to the very core of our thinking. That's surrounded by another layer of thinking, which the Bible calls our mind or nous, N-O-U-S. See, the issue in renovating our thinking is to renovate what's at the very core of our soul, those thoughts we hold to at the very core of our thinking. How's the sound doing? Okay, because I know we didn't run out on Sunday and I thought we might change it, so I'll just stop. Change the battery. Our thinking. The core is to change what... I mean, the issue here is in, in learning the word is to change the core thinking that dominates all of our reactions, all of our thought processes, the, the, those, those instant reactions we have when somebody does something to us and we respond in anger or bitterness or, or, or revenge or whatever it is. Those are the instant reactions of the sin nature. As we renovate our thinking and Bible doctrine begins to dominate our soul, eventually those reactions are going to change. That takes time. So the pastor teacher teaches, and then, it's, then the Holy Spirit takes that, and the Bible uses the word pneumatikos to describe it, and makes it spiritual phenomenon. Pneumatikos. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. Now, I think at every step we have to exercise volition. The Holy Spirit makes it pneumaticos, that means it's spiritual phenomena, and He makes it understandable, but He doesn't make it understood. Follow me? He makes it understandable. That means there is a potentiality here. There's a potential that now you can understand it. This is grace. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your education is. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. That's grace. The Holy Spirit makes it clear so that you can understand it. But you also have to exercise a little volition here and you have to think about it. That's why you have all of these passages in the Scriptures that talk about meditate. Think, 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 think about these things. You have to think about it. Then you understand it. You understand it. It's when it enters into, well... This isn't going to be very clear. This is where it enters into your noose, your mind. At that point, it enters into your noose as gnosis. Just transliterate gnosis or academic knowledge. Before it can be gnosis or academic knowledge, 
You have to understand it. This is one of the biggest problems I've seen in churches. They come and they fill their notebooks and they can talk the talk and they can regurgitate the verbiage because they've heard it over and over and over again. But then you start seeing how they apply it or you start getting them in an independent conversation and they've never understood it. They've just learned a lot of verbiage. It hasn't become gnosis yet because, frankly, they, were, they never thought about it enough to make it their own and to understand it. Then you have to exercise the volition again. Now that you understand it, you have to make the next decision, that is, do I believe it? Do I believe that that is true or not? Do I accept it or reject it? At that point, if you are positive and you believe it, simple trust, then the Holy Spirit transfers that from the noose into the core of your thinking, the cardia, where it becomes your core begins to form your core belief system. And this is a process. It takes time. It's line upon line, here a little, there a little, precept upon precept. That's the process of illumination. And this is what God is doing in our lives. And it begins with the Word of God. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Problem-solving device. Handling fear. What's the focus? The focus is on the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 36.9 For with thee is the fountain of light. In thy light we see light. The only way you're going to have objectivity in your soul and in your life is to start with the Word of God and let that transform your thinking. We live in an era when people are so subjective, it's incredible. And they don't even know it. I've seen people sit there and talk about how subjective everybody is, and the person who's saying it is one of the most subjective people I've ever heard. Because if, you, if you're not operating on the objective word, you can't help but be subjective. Psalm 43.3 O send out thy light and thy truth. Notice the connection between light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill, that is, to worship God. It's a metaphor for bringing us into the presence of God, fellowship, rapport with God, and to thy dwelling places. Notice the connection between light, which is a metaphor for revelation of God's word, and truth. Send out thy light and thy truth. That's what leads us. So let's summarize this, what the Bible says about light. First of all, Scripture tells us that God is light. And that is a metaphor in John, 1 John chapter 1 for his pure character. Point number two. But God also is said to emanate light. Light flashes forth from the throne room of God. And that is a metaphor for revelation and illumination. Constantly you see the contrast between light in reference to the kingdom of God, Scripture says that when, at salvation we are transferred from the kingdom of light into the kingdom of... I mean, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Sin is in the realm of darkness. Light is the realm of God. Darkness is metaphorical for sin. But light represents revelation and illumination. That brings us to point three. Revelation has two categories. 
The first is general revelation, which is the nonverbal testimony of creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And Romans 1.19 and 20, which talk about how the, uh, their, the, the God's invisible attributes and character are evident from what has been made. On the other hand, first there's general. took the gospel with him, and so a person here and a person there, a person somewhere else heard the gospel and were saved. So people are operating on pure ignorance when they say, well, nobody ever heard. Well, just because we don't have the historical documentation does is an argument from silence. Fourth, we've learned from our study in John 3, 19-21 that light either attracts or repels depending on positive or negative volition of the believer. If you're positive, you will be attracted to the light. There will be a desire to bring your life to the light so that you can have more light to examine your life by. If you are negative, then when light shines on your life, you will be repelled by it and you will want to spend your time elsewhere than in Bible class. Point number five. As the Father of Lights, God is so powerful. As the Father of Lights, literally, God is so powerful that He created all things so He is powerful enough to solve even our greatest problems. And point number six, as the source of revelation, God has provided us with all the doctrine we need to face any adversity. 2 Peter 1.3 There is no problem that you will ever encounter in life that God has not given you the solution to in the Word of God. So every good thing, every gift of giving bestowed, every gift of giving and every completing gift, logistical grace and advanced grace blessing, contingent blessings in time, is from above, has its source in God. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or Shifting shadow. This focuses on the character of God. The attribute of God specifically known as immutability. Here is divine essence. God is sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He is perfect love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and veracity. This divine essence is shared by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The attribute this focuses on is immutability. With whom there is no variation. There is literally no variableness in God. God never changes. He is always the same yesterday today and forever. It relates to God's faithfulness. So that when we encounter trials and testing and we apply God's promises, we know that He is always going to be faithful. He is always dependable. No one else in your life will ever be dependable like God is dependable. People, no matter who they are, no matter how important they are to you, will always at some point in time disappoint you or fail you to one degree or another. But God is absolutely 
and totally, totally dependable. The word here translated um, variation is the Greek word paralage, which means to change, to vary, or to shift. The concept has to do with mutation, shifting, variation. And the, the other word that's used here is the Greek word tropes, and both of these words, paralage and tropes, had technical meanings in Greek related to the movements and the changes of the heavenly bodies. The sun and the moon, the stars, uh, eclipses. So, in verse 17, we mention the Father who created the lights, the greater light, the lesser light. And here, even though those lights vary, they, uh, there are eclipses, there are shifts, this, the moon goes through various stages, it's not always at the, shining at the same intensity. God never changes. That's the image here. God is always the same. For example, in, in confession, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That means every single time, even the 10,576th time that you have to confess fear or worry this morning, God still forgives you. And you can still move on. He is always faithful. He never says, I'm tired of this. I've done this 10,576 times this morning already. If there's a 10,577th time, forget it. See, He's always the same. He's always faithful. He will always do the same thing every time. God's faithful in Forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. He's faithful in testing, 1 Corinthians 10.13, and will never allow us to be tested beyond our ability. He is faithful in provision for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs, not just spiritual needs, not just physical needs, not just so-called psychological needs. God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is always faithful in protection. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He is faithful when we are faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13 if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He is faithful in keeping His promises. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And He is faithful to bring us to salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's see how this relates in a couple of real-life situations. Turn with me in the Old Testament to Psalm chapter 52. We'll just kind of bounce through a couple of Psalms and see how David expressed these concepts and how they're interrelated. Psalm 52. This is a time in, in David's life when he is uh, being persecuted by Saul. Here David is the anointed of God already designated, picked out to be the next king of Israel, and Saul is out to kill him. Look at what David says in response to this pressure. How would you feel in this kind of situation, this man who is your father-in-law, your king, 
the man that you have had the opportunity to kill on at least two different occasions while he was in the cave that you were in and you were just feet from him with your sword and you easily could have assassinated him. And yet you're so focused on the truth that you would never even harbor a thought of anger or resentment towards this man. And you're hounded and hounded and hounded by this individual. Hounded out of the country. That's where he is. He goes to Ahimelech, who's a Philistine outside the country. And listen to how David, David responds. Why do you boast an evil, almighty man? The loving kindness of God. Notice how over and again in the Psalms, when David has a problem, what does he do? He focuses on the essence of God. Now this word, loving kindness, is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is a very complicated word, and tomes have been written about its meaning, but it basically means God's faithful love. That's one of the best ways. His faithful, enduring love. It never changes. It's a combination of these attributes of love and immutability. The faithful, enduring love of God is there all day long. Your tongue devises destruction, so he's facing sins of the tongue, gossip, maligning the public lie. Like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. You see, at this time, Saul is, and, and he's heard this false report from Doeg the Edomite, and so David is just being run down through sins of the tongue. Verse 5, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. And the righteous will see and fear, and they will laugh at Him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. This is the person who tries to solve the problems in life through their own natural abilities or possessions. But as for me, David says in verse 8, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in what? The chesed, the faithful, enduring love of God forever and ever. I will give thee thanks forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name. Thy name. Remember, in a Jewish culture, the concept of name isn't just some verbal tag like we have in our culture. But it relates to the very essence of something. Remember, Abram's name was, was father and it was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. These names, Isaac is Yitzhak, meaning laughter, because Sarah laughed when God said, that she at 90 years old would give birth to a son. She thought that was a great joke. Who's, whose leg is he trying to pull? These names had meaning. They related to people's character. Jacob was heel grabber, deceiver, because that was his nature. Name refers to essence of something. I will wait on your essence. He understood the doctrine of divine attributes, for it is good in the presence of thy godly ones. Now just turn over the page to Psalm 54. David is in another situation, still persecuted by Saul, still running and hiding for his life. And he cries out, Save me, O God, by what? By thy name, by thy essence. And vindicate me by thy power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. That's the sole fortress. God is the what? The sustainer. 
of my soul. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how oppressive the situation, it is the Lord who sustains us. And it is the Supreme Court of Heaven that deals out retribution, not us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Verse 5, He will recompense the evil to my foes, destroy them, David prays to God, destroy them in thy faithfulness. So we see this connection throughout the Psalms between the love of God, the character of God, and the faithfulness of God. We can depend on Him. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Well, we didn't finish to verse 18. We'll conclude with verse 18 next Wednesday night, and we will get into the doctrine of divine decree. So don't use that as an excuse for not being here, because that will be important to get into some very, uh, a little heavy doctrine, but something we all need to learn, because at some point everybody has questions related to the will of God and human history. Another word, just a closing announcement, as some of you know, uh, I'll be on vacation over Christmas. I'm a little torn because I'm not going to be here, and you'll probably have a white Christmas, and I'm going to... Never had a white Christmas, so I'll miss out on that. But we will be um, with our families in um, in Houston during that time. And there will be some uh, good men teaching on Sunday morning, those two Sundays. And then on those two Wednesday nights, I want to prepare you for this. You need to be here. It will be interesting. And I'm not just blowing smoke. Uh, I've got a couple of videos that we're going to see. They're called Pharaohs and Kings. Now, it's not what I would call direct Bible study, but it has to do with backgrounds and information and ancient history and Egyptian history and biblical chronology and a lot of fascinating, interesting data from a man who's not necessarily a believer trying to prove the Bible, but he, wants, he thinks, as I think, and as uh, I think the first person to really uh, teach me this was uh, Charlie Clough, that conventional Egyptian chronology is deeply flawed. So whenever you hear people try to identify the Pharaoh of Exodus, there's some real problems with that usually. It's not Yul Brenner. <laughs> it's not even Ramses, the character that he played in Ten Commandments. That's what's called a, a late date for the Exodus. Um, that's built on liberal liberal understanding of a lot of a lot of things, and and this video gets into that. It's really fascinating. And this man, David Rolls, has written a book uh, called Pharaohs and Kings, and did a video for uh, Discovery Channel, a couple of hours. And uh, you'll learn a lot. And I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but I think that he's doing a, a, a strong work to reconstruct Egyptian chronology, and he takes the numbers in the Bible literally and accurately and trusts the numbers in the Bible. And he says that the reason we can't find in Egyptian history any mention of these events is because we've got a bad chronology and we're looking in the wrong place. But if you reconstruct Egyptian history and look in the right place, I wonder what we'll find. So you need to be here. So that's going to be not next week, but after that. I will be here next Wednesday night. So you need to be here with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your grace, for Your character, Your love, Your faithfulness, that You have, You are, Your omnipotence is beyond 
our wildest imaginations. You created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them from the tiniest microcosm, the most, the, the, the simplest DNA chain, which is more complex than we can understand. You have worked all of these things together. And so your power is infinitely greater than our deepest problems. So, Father, we can come to you trusting you, relying upon you to solve our problems because you are the God who loves us. You have redeemed us. You have bought us with the death of your precious Son on the cross. And we, are now been adop- we have now been adopted into your family as, royal, as members of your royal family. And you will not withhold any good thing from us. But you only ask that we trust you exclusively and rely upon all of the skills, the spiritual skills that you have given us in your word, which we call stress busters, problem solving devices, that we might handle the outside pressures of adversity and keep that pressure from entering into our soul, converting it to sin nature, control of the soul and stress. Father, help us to remember these things, the doctrines we've learned tonight, the verses we've quoted, these promises, drive them deep into the core of our soul, that they would dominate our thinking and our actions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.